Welcome to Tracks to Success, brought to you by Presentation Partners. This is the podcast that brings you inspiring people and their inspiring stories. How did they find their way to the top and how can their path help you do the same? Here's your host, network broadcaster, executive and entrepreneur, Craig Cam. Right now on this edition of Tracks to Success, You'll hear from one of the most widely known sports business analysts, and you could make a strong argument that when it comes to sports business, he is the analyst. But the thing about him is that people actually love to argue with him. His social media following surpasses two million, and his tweets come rapid fire, drafted, preloaded, scheduled, and ready. With news you can always find ways to use, and some news you won't get anywhere else and many will take him to task over And he's fine with that. He went to Northwestern, but bypassed a great journalism school for a major in theater, and he did it with a purpose. He's been a part of ESPN twice, CNBC once, and now calls the Action Network his home. Betting on a long run there after building a resume that includes documentaries, hard news reporting, election coverage, and singing the national anthem. Oh, and Canada's too, at a major league game with his Twitter handle plastered to the back of the jersey he wore. Frankly, you can love him, hate him, follow him, or mute him, but his belief that sports and commerce are forever married and ready for consumption has made him a capitalist worth a follow. His name? is Darren Ravel, his inspiring story, and this edition of Tracks to Success starts now. Darren, really appreciate this. Uh, I don't know how I pulled this off, but to get you pulled away from all the stuff that you do each and every day, the number of social media posts and everything else, phone calls, I don't, I don't know how I did it. How did I pull this off? How did I get you? It was a lesson in persistence, Craig. You know, we we had some uh, we had some back and forths. Most of the time, I left it as, as a cliffhanger, and then you came back and back and back until I was finally like, "I got to do this thing already. I got I got to knock things off my list." <laughs> I'm glad to be on your list. That's cool. So, tell me, how many hours a week, or maybe a day? Let's do a day. How many hours a day on the phone, calls, social media? I'm sure you get those weekly activity numbers and stuff. What's the number? Screen time is about 13 hours a day. Um, so I, you know, wake up around six o'clock. Things have changed a little bit recently, but, uh, you know, go through my phone, do my standard, like this day in history. Sometimes it's planned, sometimes it's not for Twitter, just kind of catching up on things and uh, always have a combination of video stuff, sometimes TV stuff. Uh, and then throughout the day, just keeping up with the maddening pace of social media. Although I've posted every single post myself, I do have help to make sure I don't miss major stories. So there are guys, I have one guy specifically whose job it is just to give me levels of alerts. Mm. Uh, so if it's, if it's uh, urgent, he'll give me a phone call. If it's uh, semi-urgent but not immediate, he'll text me. Uh, and then an email will be like, okay, check these out. But uh, that's that's the only way I can be sane yeah. uh, in this world and how fast it moves. Is he or she that person that uh, is in the in the office when you're like singing songs or, you know, doing some sort of dance in your office area or somebody different? No, this person this person's like a personal employee of mine uh, in New Orleans. So okay. just, uh, yeah, yeah, not just remotely. Uh, making sure that I'm good. Darren Ravel Enterprises. Okay, so here's the thing, right? I, I get excited about doing this interview. I've followed you for a long time. I, I didn't really need to Google a ton of things or look at a ton of things, but but it was interesting. I, I pop it open and I just want to see what comes up quickly. And one of the first things that comes up quickly, the sports guy, this is an article, the sports guy, the S is a dollar sign. Why so many people hate Darren Ravel? I mean, seriously, that's what happens. How do you deal with that? 
Uh, so it's interesting because my daughter Googled me for the first time, my eight-year-old daughter, and that's what popped up. And she was a little bit confused. And so I've always explained it to adults kind of what it is and perhaps why it is. But uh, explaining it to my child was something more challenging. So BuzzFeed called me for that story years ago and said, hey, we want to do a story on how you're the most hated man, whatever. Would you participate? I said, yeah, of course I'd like to participate. I'm actually interested to know what you'd find out. <laughs> and some of what they found out was that people don't like me because sports is their escape and I take away from their escape. I, I make it about business. Um, can't stop that. That's what I do. Um, and, you know, there's combinations of other things, whether it's you know, jealousy, I think some of it comes, I've, I've had more of my rise due to social media, I would say. Um, there's a lot of things, but I've made a decision long ago that uh, I am who I am. What I put out is genuine and authentic. That's the number one thing. The only person I have to answer to is myself. And what anyone shouts at me or says of me, I really don't care. The one thing I will say is that I want to be relevant. I do. I want to be in the conversation. I'm not going to force conversation. I'm not going to say things that that aren't uh, uh, me. But uh, I think the worst place to be in this world is in the middle, like mm -hmm. just reading a prompter. People don't know what they feel about you, good or bad. When people say Darren Ravel, they either love me or hate me. And I think that's a good position to be in. I do a lot of thinking about guests. You know, whose story resonates, who's compelling, who entertains, who motivates, who inspires. You carved a niche, and I've followed you for a while, and I wanted to know more. But let me throw this at you, and you work for the Action Network now. Focuses on betting. We're going to get into more of that a little while. But this is bizarre to me. Legally now, the 4th of July is allowing us to gamble and bet on the hot dog eating contest. Like, where has this whole thing gone We've gotten way off the rails. Listen, there are some things that you say, These, this is ridiculous. This is what I know. Given the volume of betting on Korean baseball and the betting on things that are available, whether it was iRacing or real NASCAR, I can tell you that betting is going to be one of the first things, one of the first sectors that bounces back in this economy. Sure, people might be down 25% in their income, but they've over-indexed so much in boredom that uh, plus, they're not maybe they're not paying for their seats, and they have to get that little cortisol in them, that little adrenaline, and the betting does that. Talked about one of the other things that comes up, uh, that article that you just referenced. And then you got Darren Ravel running the 40-yard dash at Nike headquarters with Indomitian Sue there. I mean, <laughs> you, you are not afraid, man. You will put yourself out there, and the number of comments and all of that stuff what made you do that to yourself? You know, what's interesting is people still don't know. Like, do you think most average people look good running the 40-yard dash? No. No. Correct. Most people look awful, okay? Because, but the only thing that they can compare it to is watching the NFL Combine. So, like, again, when it was at Nike, uh, there was a glass window that was on like the fourth floor that you were running into. So the whole time I had trepidation, not like I was running so fast I'd bust through it like Superman, but like that was hesitancy. And yeah, I mean, I, I ran a 599 and then people say, hey, you're horrible. You, you know, what are you running with something in your pants, blah, 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 blah. You know, and then, then, and then people, then I say, well, you know, I did run the Chicago Marathon faster than Tiki Barber. Mm. And people are like, you know, like, okay, like, I, I did run 930 to 950 straight, you know, miles for 20 miles, um, you know, so, so it's, it is, and then people say, oh, come on, like that's whatever. So you can never really come back, but uh, I don't really, I don't know what it is. I talked to my wife and she's surprised that when I was a kid, I really was carefree. I don't really have many negative memories. I don't remember any, any sort of issues or anything like that with growing up so i think i've kind of been like almost like uniquely blessed in that and uh as long again as long as people are watching me and commenting on me i don't i don't care what they think of me yeah 
Let's celebrate this career path because you just kind of led me to it. Long before you were this business analyst and a guy breaking stories, putting things out there for consumption, you were a kid in New York. Based on what I already shared, were you a sports freak, a neighborhood bully, a kid that got bullied? What kind of kid were you at that age? Definitely a sports freak. Definitely almost all baseball. Um, you know, just just love the statistics memorize players went to a card show every week you know whether it was at a bowling alley or at a hotel lobby uh man i love my childhood and i love the the that sports played in it the role that sports played in it i will say that um i knew pretty early on that i wasn't going to be an athlete that was going to be pro and i i kind of think that because i had that thought faster than my friends and i wanted to work in sports and be sports to be part of my life so much um, you know, I started writing up, you know, my own publication when I was 10, 11 years old and selling it for a dollar. <laughs> um, you know, so, so that's kind of where things started. I just, I just wanted to be in sports so badly. I remember, you know, writing way to minor league teams for their minor league hats and waiting for them and just, just collectibles and memorabilia and the Mets and man, it was a great time to grow up, especially when you consider sports radio, um, you know, WFAN had just started up as the 24 hour sports network when I was eight years old and I used to wake up at 12 o'clock midnight I'd set the alarm to Steve Summers Captain Midnight and listen to him from 12 to 3 so when my mom was wondering why when she put me to bed at eight o'clock I was tired when I woke up at seven o'clock you know she didn't know until I was long out of high school that I had a three-hour block of content in the middle of my night <laughs> I did the same thing in Chicago man I had a transistor radio under the sheets listening to Blackhawks games and and Bulls games and I had the tape recorder when I was 10 years old doing my own games in my room and then I determined Wait, the that, 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 that that that's tough because you needed the radio for Blackhawk games I mean were they even on TV right no no <laughs> they were not you remember that and the other yeah, part yeah absolutely Bill good old Bill Bill Wirtz, Bill Wirtz. You know, don't 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 give away TV when you can't fill up uh, Chicago Stadium. You nailed Holy it. Crap. And I determined that the Sun Times and the Tribune didn't do a good job of promoting my team, so I wrote my own sports page and then I delivered it, but I didn't charge there a dollar. Go. See, <laughs> I didn't do that. I wasn't that smart. You were. So tell me about your mom and dad. Were were they big influencers for you? Yeah, my mom was uh, was a Spanish teacher. Um, she she just allowed me to do everything I wanted. I did a lot of plays. I did a lot of theater. I was one of those guys that, you know, when the kids concert was, I was the guy standing in the middle screaming. It's been a unique challenge for me since I married someone who was shy when they were younger and all three of my kids are shy. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, really supportive. My mom was a um, big Brooklyn Dodgers fan. She lived in the house with crazy Brooklyn Dodgers fans and in, in in New York, my dad uh, definitely fostered my my love for the game. He was a, a huge Cubs fan, grew up in Chicago. Uh, probably the biggest thing my dad did for me, though, is, and I don't really remember kind of overtly learning this, but he, he was a niche guy. I mean, he was a guy who had a PhD in biophysics and biochemistry and also had his, the marketing wherewithal. So he started a medical consultancy firm that where the scientists and the marketers kind of came together and all these these guys wouldn't normally speak the same language so he had a really cool niche and i think that by osmosis or whatever you want to call it that kind of made me understand how to build your value by picking an industry that is small enough that you could be the only or the best in but big enough that people will eventually care. And I think that's what led me to sports business. Yeah, a little bit of entrepreneurship. You ended up at Northwestern, so you were hardly lacking in academic skill, but you majored in theater. Is that is that right? What was the thinking there? So I was, I was convinced I could make it on Broadway. Um, I have a pretty damn good voice. I'm very <laughs> confident about it. Um, I was in two operas at Northwestern. I was in a couple plays. I thought I could make a career out of it. It's good that I went to Northwestern where theater was so competitive. Uh, I had the idea that I was going to work in sports. Luckily, I was, you know, obviously at a school that not only had academics, but had the, the Big Ten. Um, Northwestern just come off, come off the Rose Bowl. They were really competitive in football. 
Uh, I actually, instead of going to the daily paper, I started writing while majoring in theater. I started writing for the weekly paper that no one read called the Northwestern Chronicle. And out of frustration, uh, when I became the sports editor, uh, I turned it into a, basically a gambling rag and that got people <laughs> reading again. Um, I was the, the sports director of the radio station, which was just a tremendous uh, learning experience. We had the largest student-run radio station in the country as far as uh, how far the the uh, uh, listenership goes, two million, you could go two million to the Wisconsin border. Uh, and, and so, but my sophomore year, I kind of realized, I'm like, you know what, I can be the best and I, maybe I can make it on Broadway, but this industry is not fair. And you could have a amazing rise and an amazing role. And then maybe six months later, you could be a waiter. Yeah. And so I continued to be a theater major. I thought it was great for stage presence, for talking, for memorization, uh, very much better in some cases than the journalism school as far as presenting and uh, you know, doing, doing some of the things that you're required to do as a journalist. And uh, you know, junior year, while still being in theater, I was just reading the USA Today uh, green money pages as much as I was reading the, the red sports section. And I said, you know what, I, I love business. I wanna be a, a sports business journalist. And um, there was very little at the time. I started a sports business radio show and I quickly found out that, you know, everyone wants to talk to athletes and they, for the most part, don't want to talk to you. And no one's really talking to the business people and they have tremendous stories. So why not even as a student, just forget that I'm a student and let's put out the best sports business radio show in the country. And that's what I did for two years. Um, and it was built my Rolodex was amazing and made me fall in love with that specific part of the industry. You were a guy also who walked around football games wearing a purple blazer, right, for Northwestern Wildcat games. I mean, you you were standing out. You you seemingly, even though a theater major and starting this sports business radio show, if you will, um, were putting yourself out there and, and getting notice. And this Rolodex of contacts had to help you maybe land that internship at Fox. Is that correct? So yeah, I, I the funny thing is, so my so my my sophomore year after my sophomore year at Northwestern, I I did get a job uh, at Fox in media relations, which was great to see kind of how things went. Um, I remember my first day, they were telling me how to take the ruler and take, now I really feel old and the newspaper and rip it and then make a clip and then put it down. And every day the clip page would be 50, 50, 60 pages of clips that you give to the Fox executives, they said. And then the next day the Fox Fox bought the Dodgers and the clip pack was 143 pages. And uh, poor Darren Ravel intern was really uh, working it. <laughs> so from there, from there, because I had the Fox connections, I, I my junior year got foxsports.com and uh, you know basically said, hey, do you mind if I do my own project here? I think I could build a sports business website and didn't get it paid any money and was able to build a sports business website called foxsportsbiz.com, which launched as I went back to Northwestern my senior year and I worked through it, worked with it throughout. And then, then comes uh, an interview with ESPN, you know, really looking for an intern at Northwestern my senior year. And as luck would have it, it was not an HR person. It was David Albright, a senior executive at ESPN. And I said, you know, you guys need a business reporter. And he said, why? And I said, well, you know, if you look at your front page today, there's all these dollar signs. There's two, two stories with dollar signs and they're written by AP writers. Um, and he said, so, so what are you saying? I'm saying, well, the other, the other stories you would think would be embarrassing if they were written by AP writers. Peter Gammons is writing baseball. Andy Katz is writing college basketball. Um, if you're the worldwide leader in sports, you know, you should probably have someone with for sports business. So I think it was just a moment in time. Um, I went to Bristol. I interviewed with the great John Walsh and, you know, 21 years old. Um, I was the second youngest on-air person they were hired in their history, uh, only short of Max Kellerman. And uh, I moved up to Bristol and I had my dream job from day one, really 
blessed and really strange. But the thing about this, and you kind of glossed over the best part of the story, as I understand it, is is your five-minute pitch going, give me five minutes. And this guy was actually like a recruiter coming on campus to try to get editorial folks to come up there and work. And you, and this is what I respect about you. And, and if I was, you know, talking to a room full of college students, which I do, I would say you've got to find a way to not just follow the curve of what everybody else does, but to set your own. And that's kind of what you did. You gave him this pitch and, and what, 10 days later, bam, you're at ESPN doing stuff at the worldwide leader. Yeah. 30 days later, I'm on sports center. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you got it. You got to You got to zig when other people zag you, especially, you know, I had looked at all the, all my friends who were at the Medill school of journalism and I thought a lot of them had some great tapes, things that were better than me. They weren't as good promoting themselves. Um, and they weren't as good understanding that when they were sending packages to whoever these directors were of these stations, they didn't realize the struggle alone for that director to open the package. So you have to send it in a box or you have to wrap it with your resume or you have to do some crazy things. Listen, so many people want to work in sports for free that in order to prove that you deserve money, uh, any money at all, you have to be good enough. And I never, I never took that for granted. I wanted to be in sports so bad and work in sports so badly that, that, uh, you know, I, I never left any stone unturned and I always wanted to, you know, market myself to the hilt to the point that when I gave the, the man, David Albright, my, my resume, it was an eight page laminated color media guide of myself that I had spent a thousand dollars as a college student that I did not have um, to basically, you know, give to him and kind of blow things away in, in the minutes that I had. That's cool. Hey everybody. I really want to tell you about Ahead, one of our new partners this season and now the official headwear provider of tracks to success, creativity, a sharp look, dozens of styles to choose from. Ahead's been supplying the most prestigious events and outfitting the world's top golfers for 25 years, and it's perfect for you as well. So if you're looking to dress for success, make sure you think ahead. Here's your chance to save big. Visit AheadUSAShop.com now and use the code TTSPOD. That's TTSPOD and receive 20% off your purchase. Ahead, the finest in headwear, the official headwear of the Tracks to Success podcast, and available at aheadusashop.com. 2006, you left ESPN after all of that to go to CNBC, which is obviously a great opportunity to be in the NBC family. You hosted your own show, Sports Business with Darren Ravel. That was a cool show, by the way. Didn't last long enough. It. it was during all that time that social media really, you know, exploded. Twitter during that time that you were there as well. So this is a two-part question. Number one, why did you leave ESPN for this opportunity? Was it because you could do your own show? And number two, um, how much did you benefit from that social media explosion? So number one, I left ESPN because after six years, um, when I turned 27 years old, um, you know, they were giving me 3% raises and still treating me like the kid, even though I wasn't the kid anymore. Um, and uh, I felt like the opportunity to go from the worldwide leader in sports to the worldwide leader in business was great. I always wanted to do the business of the Olympics with signing the deal with CNBC. I got two of the coolest Olympics in Beijing and uh, Vancouver. Uh, so it was really a no brainer to me because I knew that I had to I, need, I had to get along financially a little bit more. And I felt I felt like I deserved it. And I wanted more guarantees. I wanted to be on outside the lines more guaranteed, and they didn't give it to me. Um, and I, I love the opportunity with CNBC. I love the idea of going from being the nerd at the sports network to the cool guy at the business network. And uh, it turned out really well. Um, I was always worried when I made that move in 2006. Of course, you know, Twitter was coming around in 2000. 9, 10, mm -hmm. I worried when I made that move that people would forget about me or they wouldn't be able to follow me. And uh, I think there were some people who, who I, I was lost to the world for. And there were some people who at CNBC was, were introduced to me for the first time. 
But really, I would say in 2011, 12, that's when social media started taking off. And uh, I think CNBC didn't really like it at the time. But, um, you know, I, I kind of started devoting a lot of time to it. And I went on Twitter not to put out uh, articles and uh, to put my opinion out there and get out there and spread my brand. I went on Twitter because I'm always trying to swim uh, in this space where it's so easy to drown, where I have to do the secondary business story. So in order to know that, I have to know the first part of the story. And if I can do anything with speed, that's going to help me. And so Twitter, I just couldn't believe I could follow the right people and the information would just come to me. Wow. Um, so that that that's how it went down. And and obviously, I went all in on Twitter and and it and it paid dividends for me. Uh, yeah, you went all in. All right. 2011 Major League Baseball game. You talked about your great singing voice and you put it to the test. The Rays and the Blue Jays, you sung both national anthems at that game, but you did it with a jersey on with your Twitter handle on the back. Am I correct? I mean, you flat out yeah. put your that marketing move brilliant yeah don't 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 leave don't leave anything on the table you know uh and i and i and i don't think i have i've always been kind of just if 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 you want to say like he's too much into himself or whatever which by the way i don't think is true i think people will come up with whatever they want but if if no if if you're not going to promote yourself to the hilt no one will and, and, and I kind of probably learned this from my dad. I just don't leave any opportunity on the table. Season two of Tracks to Success is brought to you by Presentation Partners. Presentation Partners is a unique team of award-winning executives helping you build a presentation others will be talking about. Presentation Partners teaches you the true art of storytelling. And if you haven't heard about their neuroscience of persuasion, You'll see how valuable it is to own it. Whether you're a company or an entrepreneur, Presentation Partners is the team you need behind you. For almost 15 years, they've helped clients raise millions in capital and countless dollars in sales simply by making top leaders successful presenters. The time is now to find your authentic voice and learn your authentic story. Presentation Partners, creating persuasive story presentations based on something other than just your good looks. After six years away, you go back to ESPN. Was it ever the same going back? Did they treat you differently? Was it better? I mean, they did treat me differently. Um, I think I kicked their butt for six years and they were, they were nice enough to, to have me back and, um, you know, I, it was amazing to see having left in 2006, not gone back to campus, and then six years later return. I mean, that was probably the biggest growth period for ESPN, and it might be considered the biggest growth period in their history. Uh, I, when, when I left, I could walk to the cafeteria, and six, six years later, there were all these shuttle buses going to the cafeteria because it was such a, a monolith that, you know, it, it, it was unreal. Um, you know, I, there were differences and that I didn't live up there anymore. So I would drive up there two times a week or so when I lived there, my first six years, uh, in Bristol, I would go to work at seven o'clock, return at seven, uh, go to work at seven o'clock, go to 7 PM, uh, eat dinner and then go back till 2 AM. Uh, and I did that every day, Monday through Friday. And that's how I was able to write two books, but I was 20, by the time I was 26 and really still do the ESPN stuff. Uh, but it was different when I went back. Um, you know, clearly I'm a much older person at that time. Um, and, uh, and the business of sports had exploded. Um, there, there was no, in, from 2000 to 2006, I think there were some questions of, you know, what is this guy doing here? Um, it, he's not essential. He's a bit player. And I think by 2012, I was clearly uh, an essential player. If you didn't know about base year compensation, your owner's capacity to spend uh, endorsements, if you didn't know that, if you did, it, they definitely needed me. So, um, you know, it, it, it felt good to be back. It really did. Now, there were complications with Twitter because by that time I was, you know, so big on Twitter that 
there was a, uh, hey, you know, make sure you don't break something to Twitter or make sure you run the, the every single thing that you're going to put on Twitter by, by the news desk. That was probably the, the most palpable tension that was going back and forth, but I don't think it ultimately affected my, my use of it. This might be an ego-driven question for you. See how you go with this. To some degree, you just mentioned that, that sports business exploded. I know you covered it, but do you feel like you helped raise awareness of it? Oh yeah, you know, def definitely. I mean, when I so when I so if you go through the history of sports business, somewhere in ninety two, ninety three, Sports Center every time someone was signed would say, "This person, you know, is making this type of contract." Before it wasn't a a, a slam dunk, um, and then in ninety eight, Sports Business Journal came. Um, so certainly that was a big thing, uh, and then I came in two thousand. Uh, I, I would like to think certainly through Twitter, you know, I've kind of let people be known that I'm a conduit. And if you pass things through me, I'll give you credit. So I think I've turned people into mini sports business reporters. I know I can't find any, everything. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think I've pounded it so much, certainly on Twitter, um, that people understand that the way I look at it. And they now kind of some people now look at the the game the way I have and from a sports business standpoint. So where do you find this stuff, Darren? I mean, you, you just talked about all the time that you spend looking for stuff on your phone or, or making calls, et cetera. Where do you come up with all this stuff? It's exhausting. Um, I have a ton of sources, people out there, some people who want to be known, some people who don't want to be known. I have tons of lists of things like, you know, on this day, I should just check in, do something on memorabilia, do something on, I certainly miss doing stadium food throughout this. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I have a lot of handwritten lists I have because I like to see things in front of my eyes. Um, but yeah, the, I think part of what also makes me me is the eclectic nature of things and that people never know what they're going to get whether it's something that just happened on the stock market or the sports food, or normally I like to tie it to business, obviously. But um, yeah, I, I, I like to switch it up and I switch it up not only for you, but I switch it up for me. I enjoy doing this so much. In your time at ESPN and CNBC, you were on World News Tonight, Nightline, Good Morning America, NBC election coverage, all that sort of stuff. And you, you were a part of some documentaries. I mentioned the show that you hosted was the coolest thing you've ever been a part of or done. This might be a loaded question. Swoosh Inside Nike, the documentary. Because that was a great, I mean, that was, the documentaries at CNBC were my greatest. I mean, I, I just love doing them. Um, uh, basically saying to Nike, I'm doing a documentary on you guys um, and saying that part of the documentary will be Phil Knight for the first time ever on camera admitting that his use of child labor was a mistake and otherwise we're not doing it, you know, and, and then saying, okay, he's ready to talk. You know, that's like a, a wow. And then, you know, we want to talk to Jordan about uh, everything that went on behind Michael Jordan and Nike signing and this and that. And, and that was, yes, we got that too. And then we got, you know, we, 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 we don't believe you that, that child labor is not there anymore or that the, the practices are, are um, what they are. And, um, you know, you're still picking countries like Vietnam and you're cherry picking them because they don't have unions or they, they're weak. Um, so let's go to Vietnam. We went to Vietnam and we looked at the factories and we did a really crazy investigation. We had a translator. I'm just really proud of the work we did for that journalistically. So not only was it cool, it was right. Um, but maybe the most proud piece at CNBC for me was um, a premise on why do so many Indians own Dunkin' Donuts? Uh, so when I was doing a, a documentary on franchises, I asked the person at uh, Dunkin' Donuts, why do so many Indians own Dunkin' Donuts? And she said, oh, we can't tell that. We can't do that story. I go, well, do they? And she said, I don't know. So I said, I need a full, give me a full list of franchisees. And we found that there were 700 plus Patels owning Dunkin' Donuts in Chicagoland area alone. And I then said, well, do a little digging. I want to do this story. 
And a week later, she called me back and she said, well, you were right. Uh, they do over-index in ownership. They're a huge part of our ownership. And I uh, have a person for you to talk to to find out why. Well, the story goes that there was a guy named Amrit Patel who came from India with five or six of his family members, and they worked for him in a single Dunkin' Donuts in the Chicagoland area. And when Amrit's Dunkin' Donuts was successful, he gave them the franchise fee to each go and start their own Dunkin' Donuts. But he gave the franchise fee in cash, so they never had any debt. And he essentially became the Johnny Appleseed. Hmm. And the deal was take care of your own people. You work with your family in a Dunkin' Donuts. Once you're successful, you give them the franchise fee in cash. And it created this whole chain that now that's why there are so many Indians owning Dunkin' Donuts. And I just, I, there's a lot of pride that I have and that I had a genuine curiosity that was dismissed. It turned out to be reality and it just turned out to be one of the great stories. Some of the most successful people, they get there because of curiosity. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, they want to learn more. Agree. They want to talk to people. You've interviewed some some really big swingers. I mean, I, I'd be here for a long time putting names down. And that's one of the greatest things that I've always found that I've enjoyed is, is interviewing people no matter where I was in the media business. But you've interviewed Michael Jordan. You've interviewed Michael Phelps, Lance Armstrong, among big name athletes. Who gets it? Give me one person that you were blown away by, not by their accomplishments, but by the way they handle fame, by the way they treat people along the way? Well, let me split that up. Um, I couldn't believe uh, Kobe's ability to be who he was off the court. Uh, he legit was better off the court than on it, uh, which is obviously saying a lot. Um, he asked for my telephone number a while back, uh, maybe in 2006 or so because we had always done some business interviews and uh, we got to be friends and um, man, he, he was unbelievable, very talented, total sponge as far as the business goes. Uh, so I was, I was blown away by how he absorbed, you know, Harvard case studies, how he got, you know, Hollywood right away. Um, and obviously just a horrible tragedy that he's not with us. The tragedy is even greater that, uh, again, he had more to give us off the basketball court than on. Um, I think other people blowed away by by friendship, by humility. Um, you know, J.J. Watts, one of those guys that, that I'm blown away with. He he was raised by tremendous parents in Wisconsin, and and he is he is all of what you'd want a sports role model to be. Hmm. David Stern, Jerry Jones, Vince McMahon. Who's the biggest big money executive who's impressed you? Vince McMahon is actually a funny one because I've interviewed Vince, but Vince is the only person to accuse me of murder. Um, what? So what, hap so what happened was uh, while I was at CNBC, uh, Mr. McMahon, the character of Vince McMahon in WWE, got blown up in a car and there was a question as to whether he survived now i was not trying to be a curmudgeon or a jerk but the number one material risk to the stock of the wwe is what vince mcmahon no longer being with the company so the fact that they created a plot that he wasn't that he might be dead and that someone perhaps investing in stocks might not understand the nuance that wrestling fans know. I thought that that was tremendously dangerous to play with. And I thought maybe the sec was going to get involved with that. So I reported it and, uh, and the WWE came back saying that they're not sure if Vince McMahon is alive or dead, but they are investigating several people for his murder including CNBC sports business reporter, Darren Ravel. And I read that on the air. Wow. <laughs> David, David Stern, David Stern was oh, another one we lost. David Stern was always, always great. Um, you know, uh, he, he, he read everything. 
So like if you said something about, I once wrote something like a lead about how he had a gray tie and he always wore red. So it was a little bit weird. So um, he, he, he knew that right away. Like he, he'd be like, ah, wearing a red tie now. I love how he read everything. Mm. That was, that, that was awesome. Yeah. You want people that embrace it. So with that, is sports too much about business now? Now, hold on for a second because you could say, hey, I hope not because that's how I make my living. But I'm talking like labor issues, contracts, never seemingly enough for athletes, um, always strife, money now to college athletes. It's exploding, rights, fees, etc. Is sports, is is the way we have grown up with sports, guys like you and me, our parents, etc., going away? <sighs> My answer to that is it just, it is what it is. Um, that's what it is. You know, we, uh, the, the only thing that I could say is that it is complex and I hope, and I see my job as, uh, dealing with those complexities and helping people understand them, helping people understand when there's a fight in the midst of COVID-19, when baseball turns from a, uh, you know, just a regular where there's COVID-19 and we're in a place where we don't know to, it turns into a real labor dispute and why it's so important for major league baseball players not to have a single season where revenue sharing is part of that and how that leads to a cap. And so, yes, the complexity and the business and how it's more business definitely benefits me, but I'd like to think that as someone who's covering the space, that I help explain it and make fans feel a little bit better. I think you do. Are you discouraged about the future of sports? No, no, I'm not. I, I, uh, man, I just hope to get back to normalcy. That's that. That's what I hope. Yeah. I hope somehow we could have the greatest uh, fall in sports history. Controversy follows you. Uh, you can't shake it. Stories that get big attention come from you as well. Johnny Manziel piece on Outside the Lines about taking money from autographs. Uh, your man, I was, I was so, I was so close. I was so close on that. I was, I was one ATM receipt away from from making a Heisman Trophy quarterback ineligible for the following year. Are you, um, are you saying you took pride in that? Well, I mean, he was doing, I mean, listen, it's reporting. It's, it's reporting. He was, he was signing autographs for money. Um, so yeah, I mean, I spent a long time doing that. Um, uh, not like I wished any ill will against Johnny. And the funny thing is years later, I, he was at an autograph signing and it was close to me and I made sure I went there to, to tell him that. And I think we didn't have any, uh, hard feelings, even though the, uh, the chancellor of the Texas A&M system spent an entire press conference calling me stupid. Um, but uh, yeah, no, those are, those are just, those are the things, you know, I, I, I take pride in that. I'm not scared to be controversial or step into controversy. Um, you know, I, I do see myself sometimes as a hired gun in that I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm not a guy who has to show up in the clubhouse every day or at games and because I don't really have that conflict, that gives me an advantage. In addition to hosting this podcast, Craig leads the CAN Advisory Group, focused on elevating communication for companies and individuals. Company consulting, empowering team and individual workshops, mind-altering webinars, and Craig's inspiring keynotes for your conference or company meeting. They're all on the menu of services. CAN Advisory helps companies clarify their message, helps professionals build and showcase their brand, and helps everyone present their best selves. So if you're the leader of a team or company looking to give your employees a game-changing one-day experience or an individual who wants to become a speaker and presenter that gets other people talking, visit canadvisory.com. And when you do connect, Make sure to mention the Tracks to Success podcast to receive a special discount on any of the CAN Advisory services. That's canadvisory.com. Now back to the interview. Your work in that, that series um, 
about athletes and their financial hardship called Broke. Broke. I loved that, by the way. There were some alleged inaccuracies attributed to you. A fake social media account from a high school kid once alleged that NBA players found their way to an escort service run by him. You ran with that. You then had to retract that. I bring all this stuff up, and, and you can comment on this in a second. I bring it up because there is such a fine line today. You know this. I'm not giving you a lecture. In journalism about what to run with and what not to run with. And everybody seems to have sources. And everybody now with a phone feels like they're a media person. So how tough is it to do what you do as fast as you do it, which you do, and be accurate? So, you know, I'd like to think that over, and I'm happy you brought that up, actually. Or I'd like to think that over a 20-year career, I've made mistakes that I could count on my hand. Um, the the escort service one was an interesting one um, because uh, a guy had a, approached me saying that his business was down because of the NBA work stoppage. I asked him questions that I felt was were difficult. Um and I felt like he, by him answering it, I felt like he did enough. Uh, I didn't call him. I didn't check. And, you know, luckily I've learned a lot from that. I will say that anyone on a local news station can can believe anyone who says they saw something, even though they, they don't. If someone wants to, you know, years later, that guy came back and said it was a great source of pride that he duped me. Um, <laughs> you know, if, he, if people want to do that, then that's fine. On Broke... Um, and that's part of my wiki on broke. That's part of my Wikipedia entry. Um, I didn't have any inaccuracies as far as I was concerned. It's that the NFL players association hasn't, hasn't liked me. And, you know, they say that there's inaccuracies and write a letter to my boss. It turns out nothing is inaccurate. So it's almost like that's really a tough point. Like the escort service thing. It's like, Oh my God, my bad bad mistake in journalism. I rushed. I didn't go through what I normally should go through and I got caught and I should have got called out on it. But then when people say it's wrong and it's not wrong, and then you can't go back or you, you know, you have to bite your lip or sit on your hands. Or again, I said, it's still in my Wikipedia entry. I don't care. (laughs) Um, but, but, but that does become difficult, um, because you can't keep, you can't keep fighting back and forth. You got to move on to your next thing. You got to move on to your next thing that's going to make you you. You obviously can't make these mistakes all the time and you try to limit it. Um, But at the same time, if you don't, if you don't learn from those mistakes, uh, then you're, you're, you're going to make them again. And I will not make the, the mistake related to that, that escort thing that I did in the rush to expediency. Well, to all the listeners of this podcast, here's an example of how fast Darren moves. Uh, I texted him about this podcast. He got back to me within literally about 20 seconds. That's not a joke. That's not an exaggeration. Might have been less, by the way. His response when I sent that was, it's fast or it's nothing. Okay, that was your quote. I looked it back up. That's my life was the second part of your text. You sent me two texts. So it's fast or nothing. That's my life. Explain what that means. I mean, there's just so much going on. You know, there's there's so much up in the air. There's so much I either have a responsibility to cover as a journalist or have a responsibility to cover because it's what people want to read. Um, and every day I, I have trouble going to sleep every night because I, I am so excited and I'm so amped up and I have so many things on my list to do and I have no problem waking up in the morning. So, um, yeah, it's just it's just completely busy. I do not have days that are slow. Uh, these Saturdays and Sundays have been slower, um, which is nice. But then, you know, I have a family. I have six-year-old twin boys and an eight-year-old girl. And, you know, I have to make time for them focus time i literally have to plot out what focus time is mm. and just hope nothing happens within those those blocks because it's that's how it is and i'm i'm proud i'm proud of you know what i've been able to do i mean that's been the hardest part of you know you got you're working for your family but you also live for your family and so being able to to give time to your family and and be completely present in this world has become harder not only because there's more distractions, but your kids have become more distracted. And so that's that's a challenge that I've embraced and I think I've won at. You're a playful guy. How about this story about 
you and Big Cat from Barstool and him wanting to play you one-on-one in basketball, right? Didn't that happen at a, at a Cubs game on, on social media night? You were there. Were you singing? What, what was the story about that? Yeah, I was singing the seventh inning stretch, and he asked me if I would play afterwards. I was in notoriously bad shape. He was in great shape, ripped. Um, my dad was with me because he's a Cubs fan, and he wanted to, to come. And uh, I said, Dad, this guy's going to kick my butt. You know, probably I probably won't score. They're going to film the hell out of it and make fun of me. And he said, well, why would you do that? And I said, well, if you if you understand how the barstool people work um, and how the dynamic of barstool is, which you which you, is, is naturally complex and hard to understand if you don't know them, uh, if you embrace them, no matter how you embrace them, no matter what the results are, uh, it's harder for them to hate you. And so this was a move to, hey, you know, like Darren Ravel guy, the guy they call the nerd, the guy who they, you know, rip on. He showed up. He lost 11 nothing, but he showed up after the Cubs game to a basketball game. My dad was so distraught. My dad's a branding guy. He goes, I think this is bad for your brand. And I think it turned out to be really good because I kind of became very difficult for them to to really hate me not like that was my goal but anytime you can convert people to at least respecting you i think that's doing something that's so cool and all that said i mean you are so respected i mean we can talk about the fact that you say and you've said this probably 10 times already about people hating you or whatever you're on the advisory board at northwestern for graduate programs in sports administration and my gut tells me because i don't know the answer to this that you do enjoy giving back that you do enjoy you know fostering futures if you will for students that might want to do what you do because let's face it you kind of paved the way for it to be a deal yeah i mean i i i think that uh, listen i do a lot of mentorship there i won't just do it you you have to be able to show me the drive um, it's not just, I'm going to do it cause you know, it's my friend's brother or whatever it is. Like if you show me the drive, I have, you know, 10 people I'm mentoring at a time. Um, you know, the importance of just really working so hard. And as I said before, to prove to yourself, to prove to someone else that you deserve to make money in sports. Um, um, I'm proud to have mentored, you know, many people who've, who've gone on to great things. And, you know, I do think I, I have to pay back. Um, part of it is because from the Northwestern standpoint, um, going to that school was, was undoubtedly something that, that boosted my career uh, and my life. And um, I think, you know, being born in the year I was born, if you look at outliers and Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were both born in 1958. And that meant that the first computers were in libraries when they were freshmen. For me, I was born at the right time so that the dot-com boom hit. hit. And when I went to Northwestern, I was like, yeah, do I really need my email? And when I got out, boy, did I need email. So, so I feel very fortunate. I feel lucky um, and I feel blessed. And so I do give back and, and, and try to, you know, build the next bunch of careers. Talking with Darren Ravel of the Action Network. Just a few more things, Darren, before I let you go. Let's talk about the Action Network, your employer, all about sports betting. Some think it could actually harm sports. Others say it's been going on anyway, so just let it all happen. Let it be legal. Are you nervous at all in what you do about athletes and coaches and owners falling to the dark side and seeing the integrity of games or their sports compromised? Listen, I mean, if it's all above board and it's legal, it is true that there's there's really no way you can do something that nefarious without it being caught. I mean, it is just so monitored. Uh, I do worry about college a little bit, uh, obviously in a scenario where you have people who aren't paid and and the money being so so big, um, but, but things will be caught. Uh, and I have faith in that. Um, the leagues and the teams, uh, you know, they've said that it's going to cost them more money, and that's why they should get integrity fees. Um, I think there are certain conflicts that do come up, uh, but 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 I do not think that games will be compromised because the money is out in front. I mean, it's much worse when it's in the back alleys with envelopes. Mm-hmm. 
earlier we talked about the story of you pitching yourself to ESPN out of college. The fact of the matter is you bet on yourself and you've done that for quite some time. You've basically given a stiff arm to all of your critics who take their shots at you and, and pretty much laugh it off for the most part. You have to at some point during all of this, though, doubt yourself or question yourself about some of these things. No? Have you ever felt insecure with all that goes on around you? Sure. I mean, in moments, you know, sometimes you say things that you think, like on Twitter, for example, like I was trending nationally because when Bill Buckner died, I said, you know, rest in peace, Bill. I'm sorry that your big moment of pain and probably, you know, compromised your life uh, was my big moment of joy as a Mets fan and the ball rolling through your leg. To this day, I don't understand what is so horrible about that other than honesty. But people made it like, oh, my God, he's making about him. Bill Buckner died. This and that. There were some times where I put out a tweet and what I thought it kind of suggested is not what it suggests based on how the masses react. And so, you know, yeah, there, there are moments. Um, there are definitely moments. I'm not going to lie about that. But in general, I don't suffer every day by people yelling and screaming at me. I love every day. Um, but, but I would say I've, I've made mistakes just like everyone else. And then, you know, how do you react to those mistakes externally and internally? This podcast is called Tracks to Success, Darren. Your path impressive because, as I said, you've been a pioneer. You've been a trailblazer in sports business reporting. So what's your message? What would you say if you were going back to a college campus or you're on a stage at a, at a big conference somewhere? What's your message to anybody who might be afraid to put themselves out there? Yeah, if you don't put yourself out there, you're not going to get out there. You're going to be uh, in, a, in, a, in a position that people create for you. Don't do that. Create your own position. Figure out what you love. Try to, um, you know, not work for life, but but get something that you can do every day that you love and it will never count as work. But if you're not going to develop your brand, that doesn't mean that other people won't define you. So try to define yourself. Try to get out there. And the more you get out there in terms of where you want to be, the better chance you have to actually get there. Would you not agree that we're all a brand anyway? I mean, you can't do anything about it. I, I kind of laugh off. People say, oh, there's no such thing as being a brand. The bottom line is is you you pretty much are yeah. one. Yeah, you're you're branded in a way. I mean, there was a, there was one point, you know, it's 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 like um, you know, when when the um when uh when when the whole sexual harassment thing, the the Me Too thing came out, you know. I have, when I was at ESPN for my first six years, I said, I will never date anyone from ESPN for, for even a coffee, uh, like in terms of like a date. Um, and part of that was because it was the branding. It was, it was, it was me as a brand. It was me as a person. It was that I ne would never want that. I would never want anyone to, to be put in a, a situation, you know, where I would be accused of something. And so if I think of myself as a brand, yes, as a person, but when I think about myself as a brand, like I don't want to put my brand and my person at risk. And so I've made some good decisions based on thinking about myself as a brand more than a person. When you think about yourself as a brand before you wind up doing something stupid and you're in the newspapers or you're in the courtroom, it actually helps me. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does make sense. Uh by the way, I've followed the brand. I've watched you build your brand. Uh, I'm a fan of the brand. And I love the fact that you embrace everything that kind of comes with it. Probably some challenging conversations with your young kids at times when, uh, when things come out about you. But I, I love that you've been able to handle that and uh, put stories out there and get people to pay attention. More than 2 million followers on Twitter. How many tweets, by the way, uh, did you set on a timer while we've been doing this thing? Oh, nothing. I, I, I paid complete attention to you. Yeah, I played, paid complete attention to you. All right, I'm going to go back and I'm going to look to see how many things were there. Darren, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. Okay. This has been great. Thanks, Greg. 
Darren has climbed the ladder of sports business, in a way serving as a pioneer for covering the financial doings of sports. He's now fully committed to the Action Network where the business of sports betting is king. And that leads me to my one last thing. If you want to be an influencer, first and foremost, you need to bet on yourself. Attack whatever it is that you love with a passion, just like he talked about, and a belief that you won't just do it, you will be it. Finding a way to be recognized for making a difference and not a paycheck. The money comes when you stick to your craft and find a way to do it better than those who claim to be your competitors. I was once told that everyone will be known for something. So determine what you want that to be. Darren did it from the moment he talked his way into a job at ESPN and every step beyond. He found a way to stand out and he's had the confidence to shrug off and deflect the doubters and the critics. You do that as well. Stay true to you, be the boss of your own brand and always deliver value to your audience. Do that and your tracks to success become a whole lot easier. Hey, do me a favor. Rate this podcast for me. Give it a review before you share it with someone you know. And if you have a guest you'd like me to talk to, email me at info at canadvisory.com. Until next time, I'm Craig Can. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Tracks to Success, brought to you by Presentation Partners, visual storytellers passionate about connecting presenters with their audience. Don't forget to subscribe to the show for more great interviews and thoughts on reaching your highest personal and professional summit. You can follow Craig on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Craig Can. And for exclusive Tracks to Success content and news about our upcoming guests, you can find Tracks to Success on Twitter. It's at Tracks to Success. <laughs>